Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Danny Shader, who's the founder and CEO of Pay Near Me. This is a company he started in 2009 and now processes billions of dollars annually for over 5,000 clients. Previously, Danny was also the CEO of Good Technology, a company which Motorola acquired in 2007, as well as Accept.com, the first consumer-to-consumer payment service, which Amazon acquired back in 1999. In this episode, we talk about Danny's journey with Pay Near Me, why he decided to start this in 2009, also going back to his other companies and kind of how they played a role in his career today, why they acquired a company called Prism, ultimately sold Prism, his approach to hiring and really the four traits he looks for, Danny's experience as well working with Bill Campbell as well as Jeff Bezos, his advice to his younger self, and so much more in this episode. As always, these show notes are justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure give clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper, to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Without further ado, here is Danny Shader, founder and CEO of Pay Near Me. Danny, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time and lots to go through with, with your career. But starting with Pay Near Me, what is the company doing now? Because it's come a long way. I'm curious as to kind of overview of the company right now, Danny. What we do is we take over the entire payment relationship that our, our customers who are businesses and government agencies have with their customers with respect to payment. So everything that relates to that interaction, uh, presenting the portal through which they pay, the mobile experience, the interactive voice response service, if there's one, the interfaces that the customer service reps interact with, um, all the payment processing, so the credit cards, the ACH payments, Apple Pay, Google Pay, inserting things into wallets and controlling who can pay what with what form of tender when. And Oh, and very importantly, leveraging one of our unique assets also, uh, the ability to pay with cash. So it's mm. literally everything involved in these customers' payment worlds. And to be clear, these, these uh, customers are not commerce sites. These are yeah. typically billers. These are people involved typically in re- some sort of recurring billing relationship. And the reason this matters so much is, you know, our commerce experiences have gotten pretty great. But outside of, say, Verizon and AT&T or the, you know, Comcast, the largest billers in the world, most yeah. of our monthly billing experiences stink. Um, and so... And most of those companies don't have the resources to go out and get a Stripe or a brain tree or something and build up all that stuff. They need to keep their resources for important business problems that they have to solve. And so they can use our software and systems to come in and take care of all that in a kind of a no-code, low-code way. 
That's amazing. And I know, Danny, that this has come a long way and it's been uh, quite the journey. Yeah. Back in 2009, though, when you started, uh, take me through just the landscape of, of you know, behind this company in terms of why you ended up starting Painier Me in the first place. Well, <laughs> um, my previous business uh, was a company called uh, Good Technology, which was a company that competed with BlackBerry, if, you know, if you're Listeners oh, yes. go back that far. Oh, yes. Uh, that took non-BlackBerry devices and converted them into BlackBerry competitors. Um, and uh, that business consumed, it took me seven years, and we raised $250 million of capital. And so when that was done, I said, I'm going to do something really simple. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so we had the idea back then, 2009, things like Farmville were taking off. We had this idea um, that all these social games needed a new form of payment. And the idea was... Um, to create the world's in first intentionally unreliable payment system. Uh, <laughs> the idea was that, you know, if the goods you were selling inside these social games were free, in other words, if they had no marginal, excuse me, if they had no marginal cost, yeah. then the cost of defaulting if somebody bought them was zero. So why not create a system where people who wanted to pay, you know, wanted to play now and pay later could um, make a promise to pay later. And so we created a system called Quedit where you would make a promise <laughs> And mm -hmm. you would get access to these goods, and then you would repay your credit promise subsequently. Um, really clever idea. Uh, absolutely nobody wanted it. Um, we did have the good fortune of being ripped on Stephen Colbert's show uh, for trying to hook little kids on credit during the height of the credit crisis, which I thought was very funny, but not fair. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, uh, when we were out, one of the things that happened in the course of creating credit was 7-Eleven uh, uh, agreed to be a location where people could repay their credit promises. And when we went out pitching that to people, the whole promise thing, they're like, well, I don't care about that promise thing, but wow, making payments at 7-Eleven, that's, that's what we do in Japan. you know. So can you do that here? And we said, sure. And so that became Pay Near Me, which grew up as a cash payment network. And then over time, our customers asked us to do more and more and more, and which is how we ultimately ended up now taking over this entire experience and leveraging among our differentiators, that cash network that we built back in the credit days. For that too, Danny, so understand that a lot of entrepreneurs listening to the show, aspiring entrepreneurs as well, getting 7-Eleven on board for that in the first place, take me through that and then kind of how the, the partners in the early days went, went for you guys. That turns out to have just been a total fluke. Like it never should have happened. <laughs> um, it's turned out to be great for them and great for us. I mean, we, you know, we pay 7-Eleven millions of dollars a year and drive millions of store visits. So it's a, definitely been a win-win, but it was a fluke. Um, it happened because uh, they, at the time, were building up their services business. They were doing well with uh, you know, prepaid cards for games. We came along with a new service that would be unique to them. By the way, 7-Eleven is a Japanese company, so they understood what's called konbini payments or convenience, convenience payments, which is kind of what pain near me is in the United States with cash to what was happening in Japan. So the stars just happened to align and they, um, they decided to do this with us. We thought, Oh, this will be a piece of cake. We'll do it with every other retailer also. <laughs> and of course, no other retailer signed on for years. Um, but you know, ultimately when we were driving at a volume 7-Eleven and 7-Eleven didn't have a, enough of a national footprint, we were able to add other retailers and then build out the national network. And that's how we got the cash thing going. And then we carlaid the cash thing into taking over this entire uh, payment relationship for people. From that as well, Danny, understanding that you had, oh, just a little experience prior to starting yeah. Pay Near Me, how did you kind of think about starting this company, growing this company, 
based on the you know experience you had starting and growing other companies in the past, I'm curious how that influenced you in terms of the direction you wanted to take with Painter Me. Well, I, I mean, I'm sure it, it influenced me in all kinds of subconscious ways that I'm not, you know, that I'm, I'm not uh, <laughs> present enough to, to be able to articulate. But in general, no business I've ever been involved in ended up doing what it set out to do originally. So the fact that we started as Quetted and ended up as a enterprise payments management company is is no more surprising than the fact that the payments company that Amazon acquired that led me, you know, working as Jeff Bezos's first shadow had anything to do with the escrow service that we originally envisioned. Like it just, <laughs> you know, my general view is that, um, you know, you, you just need an idea that's a prop that gives you the opportunity to engage with customers and let those customers then take your original idea and turn it into something they actually want and need. Yeah. So I'd say that that's been the consistent theme of everything that I've been involved in. I've never, I mean, my first idea has never been right. And by the way, you know, when I think about the history of Silicon Valley, you know, there's only two companies I can think of, maybe three, where their original thing turned out to work, go really well and upward to the right, right? I mean, it was true of eBay. It was true of Facebook and our, it wasn't even true of Google. Um, I mean, obviously the search engine, but, but the business yeah. model wasn't there. So, you know, most of this stuff is, is business invention by Braille, I think, you know, <laughs> and you just sort of feel your way to, um, something that people want to buy. Yeah. And I think it's important you mentioned that because uh, for the people building companies, it often looks much different as, as time progresses. And having done so many interviews at this point where, you know, even companies that are farther along and then look at someone who's series A, series B, et cetera, like their initial version years ago is rarely the same thing as what they're doing now uh, in the same exact kind of form as well, which which is interesting to kind of think about how, how it progresses. And, and take me through that. And so I know you said it, you just said it was years to kind of get other big retailers on, on board after 7-Eleven then. Take me through that process of uh, how how you grew in the, in the early days before you had you had them on board. You were just working with Seven Eleven. Well, so in the early days, we were a cash payment network, right? So we were taking payments at cash at the retail at the Seven Eleven retail counter and turning that into a real time credit on behalf of billers. Well, since Seven Eleven has an incredible footprint, but it's not a true, or at least at the time, wasn't a true nationwide footprint. We couldn't sign up any nationwide billers, right? Because you know what's gotcha. the good of putting this. So what we ended up building was a network of regional billers. Um, you know, typically, I think originally the biggest, well, actually still one of our biggest verticals was auto lenders. Um, and so, you know, that tend to, we tended to sign up regional auto lending businesses or businesses that acquired auto lending portfolios who wanted a way for their consumers to pay with cash and not get gouged in the way they typically did by the, you know, the old fashioned walk up money transmitters that you names you would know um, that tend to be, you know, extremely, uh, well, they're slow, they're painful to use, you wait in line a long time, you pay high <laughs> fees, they expedite, they charge, yeah. you know, if you want to pay the bill sooner, they charge you an upcharge, all that stuff that we were way better than, um, you know, we could beat those guys in regional business. Then by the time we had enough regional business that our numbers were material to retailers, then we could go to other retailers and say, hey, you know, we'd like, to, we can sign up all these national billers if you'll join our network side by side with 7-Eleven. And by the way, that was okay with 7-Eleven because they also knew we would get national billers and it would increase their volume. Um, and so, you know, we ended up building the, the classic two-sided network and, uh, and you know, now it processes billions and billions of dollars. 
And and along the way with that as well, Danny, you you acquired Prism. Take me through how that came about. I know other other companies I've, I've talked to have thought about acquisitions and that sort of thing as well. How did the Prism acquisition come around? By the way, you know that we also sold Prism. <laughs> so we bought <laughs> uh-huh. and sold Prism. So that sort of goes along with the history of the company. So we had the cash business. The cash business was was clearly an incredibly valuable and unique asset. Um, customers loved it. The retailers loved it. Everything was great. It was great, but it was you know, it was kind of a 20% per year growing kind of business. Yeah. So too good to not do, not good enough to do what we wanted it to do. You know, what we wanted to be, we, you know, we want to be a 50% plus growing company. Um, and so uh, we started looking around for other things we could do to leverage the assets that we had. And the first, we, we, we made three big changes, two of which didn't work for us. And one of which now has worked hugely well. The first one was we had the observation that, well, if people were paying one of our billers with cash, maybe they'd want to pay all their billers with cash. So in other words, our model was we, we'd sign up you know, some biller and the biller would give you a barcode. You take the barcode to 7-Eleven, scan it, hand over your cash and your bill would be paid in real time. Jeez. But that was just one bill. Very cool. Very cool. But it was just that one bill. And I thought, well, look, a person who's going to pay one bill with cash wants to pay all their bills with cash. So we built a consumer bill payment product where you could... Um, sign up, you know, you could basically pay the bill that the biller sent you to pay, but then you could enter the information about your other billers and pay that bill. And one of the assets that caused us to acquire was money transmitter licenses in every jurisdiction in the country, which ultimately turned out to be really valuable. Um, but we launched that product and it completely flopped. Like it just, you know, the premise was false. Um, still not sure exactly why it didn't work, but it didn't work. So but while we were doing this, we saw this other company, Prism, that had this really killer bill payment experience that was very appealing to millennials, uh, where they could pay all their bills with any form of tender. And by the way, at, that, at this point in the company's history, we were really good at cash and kind of afraid of other tender types because it involved risks that we didn't have, you know, that weren't in our DNA, you know, yeah. like credit risk or, you know, NSF risk, things like that. Um so, but the Prism guys, their model wasn't working. We thought, well, if we combined our assets with them, we could use our money transmitter footprint, their, their uh, infrastructure, and we could uh, monetize that uh, with virtual cards. So we acquired them. And actually, that was going pretty well. It was growing nicely. Payneer Me was growing nicely. But the real synergies was, the idea was the cost synergy around the core of our assets. But right. the bunch of people said, when I did this, this is a mistake. Don't do this because you're going to find that you can't manage that. And what you're doing, painter me at the same time. And I'm like, oh, no, we can totally do this. And lo and behold, <laughs> they turned out to be right because both businesses were growing and both you know, needed the next incremental dollar of investment. And it became really hard to figure out how to break ties. And we start, ultimately started feeling like we were sub-optimizing each of those two endeavors. And sort of two things happened at once. One was for a few years prior to that point, Customers for whom, we, for whom we were processing cash were coming to us and saying, hey, you know, you do a great job with our cash. Why don't you take over our credit card payments and our ACH payments, you know, our, our electronic payments? And I, my answer was, no, we shouldn't do that. You know, we're 10 times better, 100 times better than anybody else at cash. In the card business, we'll be no better than anybody else and we'll be subscale. And so that's a recipe for failure. So we shouldn't do this. And customers kept asking us to do this. So we kept saying no. And we were investing over here in the prism thing. And sort of two things happened. One is we realized we can't afford to keep investing in both of these. And two, our head of product had an interaction with one of our core cash customers who once again said, 
to our head of product, basically, you're an effing idiot. I'm trying to give you 10 times the volume. Why won't you take it? Mm. Um, and he said, well, our CEO says, you know, blah, 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 what I just told you. And, the, and finally, our product says, why do you want it? Why do you want this from us? And he goes, because I just want one vendor. Interesting. And we're like, oh, wow. <laughs> so we could combine this commodity stuff with this non-commodity stuff and differentiate the commodity stuff. And then what that led to, what, well, let me hold on. So, that, so we said, all right, we're going to go do that. Simultaneously, we, you know, it was harder for us to manage the Prism thing. And there's another company called Bilgo that was doing great, but really needed the Prism technology. We sold the Prism technology to them. The team went over there. As far as I know, those guys are crushing it. We then doubled down on um, expanding Campaign Army to handle all forms of tender. And then ex happen exact, what happens is exactly what you think would happen. We started doing that. And they said, well, if you're doing our, all of our payments and our cash, why don't you take over the portal? Like we did that and said, well, if you're doing the portal and you do all the forms of payment, why don't you take over the mobile? Well, if you're doing the mobile, can you do the Apple Pay and the Google Pay? Yeah. Can you give us business logic that controls what who pays with what when? And, and you know, we're now suddenly we went from being starting an add-on incremental feature of our customers' payment infrastructure to taking over the whole thing. And frankly, being, I mean, and I don't think we're, I think it's accurate. We are dramatically better than any competitor. Um, because our industry tends to be surrounded by companies that are either run by private equity or they're, they've been spacked or they're doing other things where they're running themselves for the numbers instead of running for the product. And we're very product and technology first, and we can build a much better product than anybody else in the category. And we have these huge differentiators in the cash network and in some business logic and, and, and reconciliation and other things we built along the way. And so we ended up now very focused on incremental capabilities for the same set of customers instead of trying to build completely different kinds of products for completely different kinds of customers. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And on that note too, working with those customers, I mean, what kind of feedback are you getting around the products they want, the things they want, they want you to offer to them? Because that's a huge part of developing products is having that interaction. Oh, with yeah, the I mean, you, 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 they would make your eyes glaze over, but they're things that are incredibly important to our customers, right? So yeah. um, the nice thing about now is, you know, now we can have, we can have a customer council. We can say, we're thinking about doing this or that or whatever. And they'll say, do this, don't do that. You know, it's, it's classic enterprise software, you know, road mapping now. Yeah. And with that too, then, I mean, looking at today, how do you look at growth in terms of, oh, just overall, in terms of growing the company, where are some things now as you're trying to grow the company in 2020 and beyond you think about? Well, so, you know, we're now, a uh, you know, uh, Processing, like I said, billions of dollars a year, growing fifty percent a year. We think we can sustain that growth for quite a while. Um, we are primarily uh, most of our business comes out of one core vertical, one or two core verticals. So we are further penetrating those verticals, and we're adding other verticals. It's you know, I, frankly, what we do looks like it walked right out of crossing the chasm. Mm, yep. You know, the Jeffrey Moore book is you know we've got one bowling pin that leads to another bowling pin. Et cetera, et cetera, and, and we can we we're, you know we'll keep doing that. So it's deeper in the verticals we're in, more verticals, more capabilities, solving more of our customers' business problems, making sure they feel comfortable counting on us as their core infrastructure. Remember the the cir circumstance our customers are in is that their their billing experiences suck. Yep. Before we come along, as a result, they don't get paid as well, meaning they don't collect as much, and they get more customer service inquiries, which cost them more money. And their back office expenses associated with reconciling those payments are more expensive. And we come in and we solve those problems for them. And they can't solve it themselves because 
you know, most of America doesn't have enough development resources to even think about building something like this, not to mention that we have, you know, a decade of experience uh, <laughs> exactly. creating, creating these kinds of things. And so they can take their precious resources and use them on things that give them competitive differentiation. You know, if you're a lender, there's all kinds of things you want to do with analytics and improving your risk models and managing that. The last thing you want to do is build a loan management system or build a, uh, you know, the customer relationship infrastructure around payments. And so we do all that. For, we do that. We do the latter. Obviously, they'll buy a loan management system from somebody else, and then they can use their developers for the things that give them proprietary advantage. Danny, one of the things I want to go back to, I know you mentioned we obviously repeatedly because it's clearly not you, only on this oh, company. I can assure you it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk more about uh, the idea of hiring, building a team and that side of things because not only obviously do you have pay, me, pay Near Me, you have a number of other companies you've been CEO of and that's a huge part of it. So how have you, are any of your thoughts around on hiring and how you kind of approach that within the companies you've had? Um, I mean, a lot of the folks, the core folks I work with now are people I've worked with in the past. Yeah. So, you know, people tend to travel in clumps. So if you find, when I have found somebody who is, you know, has the magic combination of being smart and hardworking and high integrity and has the sort of stick to or character, or I guess what's now called grit, which I think are the magic four characteristics for success in the startup world. Um, when I find somebody and I'm lucky enough to get to work with somebody like that and they can tolerate my quirks and, you know, and we get along well, <laughs> they're likely to know other people who they get along well with and they'll pull those folks in. And so some of the core pain army folks, you know, um, uh, came with me from, you know, good technology, which was a previous company that I was involved in. But for example, I got really, really lucky in meeting this guy named Steve Caps, who's a Silicon Valley legend, worked on the original Mac development team, did a lot of the stuff for Newton, which ended up in iPhone, just this incredible, you know, an Apple fellow, a Microsoft fellow, like this awesome guy we met, we met, we were working on Quedit, and he literally said to me, oh, that's simple. It's 10 screens. You know, here we are, millions of lines of code later. Um, but then, you know, he was able to bring along his uh, uh, VP of engineering that he'd worked in the past. That guy brought along other people he'd worked with. And, you know, people bring along other people. Um, and, you know, there's no new insight there. I mean, I think that's true for everybody. Um, but, you know, that's how, we've, that's how we've done it. And then we've done more and more external recruiting now, but we've We've got a good sense of what it means to have our core values, um, and you know now what we're now what we're doing uh, is we're we're spending a lot of effort on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion because you know the downside to obviously hiring people you know is you're going to tend yeah. to hire people Just who ethnically look like you do. So we're 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 investing pretty heavily uh, in figuring out how to expand our ranks um, and and diversify our ranks materially. And I mean, with that as well, Dan. I mean, what are some of the things you're you're doing, or how are you thinking through that? Because I'm obviously there's other companies in the exact same position where it's like, yeah, we just hired our other buddies from school, and then just kind of materialize into that. But like, right. how do you how do you think through that? I'm just curious. Well, I mean, uh, we could probably spend hours on that. So I, I, I <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a number of folks who we're, well, we're, first of all, we have an internal team of folks who have been very thoughtful about laying out a plan. Yeah, we also are relying on on third parties to advise us and other people have been through this journey before. Um, the, the sort of stake in the ground we have made is that every, every quarter we want to be better than we were before than we were before. Right. So, you know, it basically involves let's assess where we're at. Let's build a plan for improving some dimension of that. Let's execute the plan and then let's measure it. And do it again and just <laughs> keep running that, cir that circle, right? 
And so obviously that's that touches, it doesn't just touch recruiting, it also touches creating a, an equitable environment. And it also it means creating an inclusive environment where people you know, who join us want to stay with us. Um, and so you know, I'm sure we will make mistakes, but I think we're already making improvements. And I think we'll just you know, it's kind of like product, right? You, you, you do it, you improve it, you do it, you improve it, you do it, you improve it. And we'll just keep doing that. With that too, Danny, you mentioned the kind of those different characteristics you look for in terms of hiring. Has it always been those ones from the beginning, your early days of your, your career? How has it evolved and shifted into like understanding what you really are looking for with these people now that you work with? Well, in fairness, the reason why I have that pithy four is that um, I, I was fortunate enough through dumb luck to end up in a company long ago called Go Corporation led by a CEO named Bill Campbell, who turns yes, out to yes. be one of, like, one of the most amazing you know, leaders who ever lived, and certainly most, one of the most amazing guys in the Valley. And my observation of, if you looked at the people around Bill they, who clicked well with Bill, they were all incredibly different from one another. But what occurred to me is that they had those four characteristics. Um, and so really what I've done is, is, is I'm basically borrowing from him. Um, what I observed you know, was one of the things that made him great. With that as well, I mean, I, I'm sure a number of people are going to be actually familiar with him, especially with when I think the book he had out relatively recently, um, I think it's trained our coach was talked about him and his kind of his life as well. Mm -hmm. Take me through more of the, your experience working with him, other aspects of that. I'd be really curious to hear more about what it was like. Well, he, I, I worked for this company called Go Corporation, which was doing uh, pen-based computing, which is arguably a precursor to, you know, smartphones, the iPhone, things like that today. Uh, and by the way, Caps was doing the same thing. Steve Caps I mentioned earlier on Newton, which was in this, you know, of the same era. Um, and I was a product manager and I, I, I gave good demo. Um, and I also have a, had a very strong interest in Japan and probably to, to, you know, to orient yourself around this time, the late eighties, early nineties, people's view of Japan and the world was a lot like people's view of China in the world is today, which is you know this this rapidly rising um, economy that would at that point I think everybody thought we'd all be working for Japanese companies at some point. Yeah, and so I'd grown very interested in that. I'd worked for Fujitsu, a Japanese computer company, in college. Um, I was very you know I was just enamored of all that, um, and we were making software for small devices, and at that point all small devices came out of Japan. So Bill came in from Claris slash Apple realized he wanted to find licensees in Japan. I was a product manager who could demo well. And so I ended up as his, you know, frankly, his demo dolly, um, traveling back and forth to Japan with him. And, you know, you tra travel back and forth to Japan with somebody a lot. You're spending a lot of time with them. And so, um, <laughs> you know, he took an interest in me and started trying to whip me into shape and, you know, ended up, uh, you know, frankly, guiding my career and trying to help improve me as a person for the rest of my life. It was pretty, uh, you know, one of those just amazingly lucky uh, things that happened. With that too, looking back at your your career so far, and obviously a number of different organizations you've been a part of, I, I'm really curious as to why you decide to join certain companies or start certain businesses. Because a lot of times the whole like founder product fit or founder market fit is very important in terms of understanding why these problems are the perfect problem for this founder, why they decide to work on that. How do you look at, you know, which companies you want to join? Obviously it's a case by case basis in many ways, but I'm curious as to how you kind of look at that in terms of deciding, oh, I'm going to start this company or join this company, which is a huge 
commitment of time and energy when you decide. How do you look at that decision in terms of your career, Danny? Well, generally, I only have only joined the companies that I've started or restarted. <laughs> I at one point was recruited in to be the CEO of a company, and the founders had a coup and threw me out. So that you know that didn't work. Uh, well, that's not the that didn't particularly <laughs> well. Uh, so I think the safe thing is for me to do the ones that I've been involved in starting. Um, and there are people. There's a guy named Bruce Dunleavy at Benchmark Capital who was on on my board a number of times, and. He used this term product picker, which I define as, I mean, I don't know how he would call it, but it's, you know, it's a person who you could put them in a room and they'd invent a million great products. Now, this guy I work for named Eric Hahn, who I think is the classic example of that. Um, I am not that guy, right? <laughs> so I'm, I, I really am not, I mean, most of my ideas are bad, um, but I can pitch an idea and I can listen and I can refine, which is why I made that point about having the first idea as a prop, which you, which I then, you know, I and the people I'm working with subsequently refine into something that people want to get. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it has been, you know, my view is that you got to start with something that you're super excited about, even if you're going to be wrong. <laughs> and you've got to be in love with the idea of being an entrepreneur and throwing your idea away when it turns out not to be right, uh, which has all been true. But my sense always was because this is so hard and I'm so likely to fail. If it's not an idea that's keeping me up at night, because I think it's so amazing, then um, then it, you know then it's not enough. They're talking me enough momentum to carry me through. Even though each time I've had one of these brilliant ideas, whether or not it was Quedit or industrial DNA or you know a bunch of things I started that turned out to be terrible ideas, um, you know that they had I had the passion for them enough to want to get going. And then you know once engaged with customers, then I got more excited about what the customers wanted me to do. Did did you always think that you would be an entrepreneur, Danny? Uh, when I went to high school, uh, I wanted to go to college and become the CEO of General Motors. So no. Um, by the time I <laughs> wait, wait, but hold <laughs> on, go, go back, go back, go there. back, go back. Wait, yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, but I um, I realized that actually there's a couple of things. One is I realized I'd be a terrible somewhere in college. I realized I'd be a terrible big company executive because I lack the patience and. And and I and frankly the subtlety that I think <laughs> you need to be uh, good at that. Uh, and then I realized, and then I fell in love with computers in college, and knew I wanted to be an. I wanted to do something in the tech in in technology. And you know, when I was doing that, you know, when I got started, there wasn't AWS or any of this stuff. You know, it took thirty people yeah. to do anything, and so you actually had to learn how to manage first. And so the path was go work for startups or go work for bigger companies where you get some management experience. And then in your thirties. You know, you'd have enough of management experience that that venture capitalists would be willing to back you. Obviously, all that has changed since then. But you know, that was the path that I took. But one of the points I want to make about GM was um, that you know, around here, I think a lot of us think we're geniuses uh, because things have gone well. I once had an investor say to me, which I love this line: "I've never met a person worth a hundred million dollars who wasn't a genius," um, and he was being very tongue in cheek. <laughs> When I think about the fact that if I had gone to Detroit in 1989, uh, sorry, 1979 when I came out of high school, I'm sorry, 1984 when I came out of college, when I came out of high school in 79, if I'd gone to General Motors or to Detroit in 1984 versus ultimately coming to Silicon Valley, you know, I'd probably be an unemployed middle manager in Michigan. Yeah. Right? Um, <clears throat> and the reason, another was saying, the, the single biggest thing that has led to my good fortune in the valley is the good fortune of being in the valley. 
A rising tide raises all boats and a exactly. sinking tide brings them down. Um, and so now ironically, now Silicon Valley is involved in Detroit, which you never would have you know, thought of back then, obviously with everything that's happening. But um, yeah. so, you know, that's always a reminder that, uh, you know, getting associated with things that are going up into the right is generally a good idea. It's a story too that you hear with a number of different people mentioning similar, but putting yourself in that environment has led to so many obviously good things. I look back at like even the decision I made to, I'm from Wisconsin originally and decided to move to Las Vegas to work on an e-commerce company that I knew I was going to get closer to the West coast is where I wanted to be. And then going to USC to get my MBA to be in LA where startup scene growing, obviously not the same as Silicon Valley, but still uh, doing interesting things happening here. And Without a doubt, the number of opportunities that have come along in only the last two years is just kind of insane from, from being in that right environment and around people who are building things and are doing interesting things. And I kind of can't like highlight that enough for anyone kind of, you know, interested in starting something, you know, whether you not, you don't have to necessarily be in these places, but surrounding yourself with those people at the minimum. And those people tend to be in the, in the Silicon Valleys, in the, in the LA and the New Yorks uh, of the world as well. So find those pockets of people can be super valuable in your career as you're going along. And, and one of the things I'm wondering, just because uh, I'm getting multiple companies as CEO as well, a number of years running pay near me, is there anything you would you would say or advice you'd give to your younger self, Danny? Uh, yeah. Um, things that, I, you know, I, uh, that I, maybe one of them is your career lasts a lot longer than your company. Ooh. So, um, you know, it's another way of saying, as Jeff Bezos was fond of saying, you know, reputations are hard earned and easily lost. Yeah. Um, the short-term expedient, you know, take advantage of the guy on the other side of the table, you know, like lying or finessing or doing things that aren't honorable will ultimately bite you in the ass because that reputation will stay with you a lot yeah. longer than that company that you're working for will last. Um, and to that point about people traveling clumps, you know, if you want to work with honorable people, then you want to be an honorable person working with those people, right? So that they'll want to work with you again. So now I, you know, frankly, that's, I'd like to think that I've been an honorable person for my entire career, but I never cease to forget the importance of that. So let's see now yeah. things that I did badly. I, uh, I remember Bill when he was, you know, criticizing me in the interest of improvement, he used to describe me as a human missile, you know, that I would be so maniacally focused on whatever I was working on that I would ignore the relationships with the people around me and piss them off. And, you know, not by being dishonorable, but maybe by being a jerk. And I would certainly caution myself to don't be a jerk. And probably what would I do to do that? I would say, consider therapy, exercise regularly, get enough sleep. I mean, all the things that, you know, will help you be more present and therefore more cognizant, yeah. help me be more present and more cognizant of the people around me. One of the things too, I know you mentioned that obviously the acquisition by Amazon, what was that like? This is Amazon, you know, it was 2000, I think it was, what mm -hmm. was that like, you know, obviously getting acquired and then working for Amazon for a bit early, early Jeff Bezos, pre richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos. What was that experience like, Danny? Well, he was man of the year while I was there. So, um, in fact, I was his shadow when he was on the time magazine man of the year tour. So in some of the pictures I'm like, I think I'm, he's carrying a Pikachu and I'm standing behind him or something. Um, uh, I mean, it's, first of all, uh, many of us who were there at the time have said, you know, to each other, could you, did you imagine then it would be what it is now? And, yeah. and actually the ones that I'm in touch with who are the folks who left didn't, because I think if everybody recognizes, they'd probably still be there. Um, the one thing that was clear to the, me though, is that Jeff was 
a uniquely amazing entrepreneur. I, mean, I did come home to my wife a number of times and say, I feel like I'm working for Henry Ford. So, you know, just insane, a combination of insanely high, you know, super smart um, and unbelievable willingness to take risk and incredible uh, perseverance. You know, I'm sure there's a lot more going on there, but that those characteristics were obvious um, in him. Uh, and, you know, you just don't see that in that many people. Um, so that was clear. But I, I don't think I had any sense of the, I mean, I, ha I can tell you with certainty, I had no sense that it would become what it has become. It's amazing what, you know, what they've done is mind blowing. Yeah, it is. It's, it's incredible. I mean, it's, yeah, if you said 20 years ago, this is where they'd, they'd be. And you're like, wow, they're like taking over the world. I mean, essentially, they're just done so many different things uh, over the past number of years. And what an experience to be able to work alongside him and work alongside Bill Campbell. I'm sure there's been other people as well in your career. I mean, how do you look at now is obviously 2020 here, mentoring others or helping others with kind of all the knowledge you've acquired so far? How does, how is that kind of incorporated in your, in your life, Danny? I'm just curious. Uh, well, obviously I try to mentor the folks who work with me, but to be very clear, they're mentoring me at the same time. Just as an aside, the guy that I, that I the technical co-founder that we went in and restarted Good with, Good Technology, which was the wireless messaging company that we mentioned before, said to me after about six months of working with me, and he, with, with, with absolutely no, you know, just complete straightforward, he goes, you know, I really have to recalibrate because I'm not work, used to working with somebody who's wrong so much of the time. And he was talking about <laughs> me. Um, and, and he wasn't trying to be insulting. He was like literally just like analytically saying, wow, you are so wrong so much of the time. Um, and my view is that, yeah, I may be wrong, but if I'm pushing the ball along and then I'm willing to listen to the people who are right, and then we do that, that's just as good as if I were right in the first place. No, it'd be better if I were right in the first place, but but I'm not going to be. And so as long as we get to the right place, uh, that's good. So that's all a way of saying that, yes, I can share things that I've learned with the people I work with about you know, whatever life's lessons I've learned, but they're constantly teaching me and each other you know, things they're figuring out. Yeah. There's so much to learn from, from others. And it is that back and forth thing as well, even between mentors and like mentees in terms of like the official relationship. It's just like people. I mean, we're all just kind of people and learning from each other. Well, I don't think process. I was teaching Bill Campbell a lot. Let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> there's always a, a wrong way or right way to do things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think among us mere mortals, yes, we can all teach each other. Except for the rare exception. I'm sure Bill at some point was like, okay, well, maybe there's one thing from Danny. That's <laughs> At some point along the way, I, I know you touched on you know the basics in terms of like sleep and et cetera as well from kind of an ongoing long career. But one of the things I know I saw from a little research is just like your your backstroke, Danny. Talk to me about this group you have. Oh, the Mermaids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curious. I'm a, I've, I've started in 2004. We started with two of us. And now there's I don't know 16 or 17 of us. As, as one of the Greg Sands, who's a venture capitalist here, refers to us as mammals, which is middle-aged men in Lycra. But it's, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's a group of 16 dads who swim very faithfully together. Um, and that keeps us all in shape and it's social and it's fun. And it's, you know, we're, and I do have a terrible backstroke, but my freestyle has gotten better and my breaststroke <laughs> is quite good. How did that come about though, Danny? That, that, that group? Oh, I, I, honestly, uh, so I was around 40. I think, and I, you know, I had two young kids and I was working my tush off and 
I, I think I had I had this epiphany where I thought, you know, it would really be a bummer to get through all of this entrepreneurship stuff, have my kids get older and die. Yeah, literally. I mean, it's like, and I don't. I think that's an, that's not an some version of that is not an unusual thing for men in their forties to realize. It's like, you know, I have to start taking care of myself. And you know, you don't have to be a rocket science to know that exercise is good for you. Um, and so, you know, I decided I'd sit, I figured I'd, I'm a terrible, I can't run to save my life. So I figured I'd take up, <laughs> I'd get back in the pool and start swimming again. Um, and so that's what I've been doing. And it's been great. It's, I mean, it's, it's, this group is, it's, um, in addition, obviously keeping us in shape, we all, you know, it's, it's social, we drink together, we hang out together, we carpool together since we can't, well, I'm sorry, we caravan together since we can't carpool together. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been great and it's good for my mental health and good for my physical health and, and it's nice to have relationships um, that are personal instead of professional. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to bring that up because I think you know we can learn. We talked about just a minute ago about learning from from people around us, and I think people at different stages of their life have different perspectives. And you know, you can kind of have the cheat codes of life in many ways. To be like, well, let's see, where this person has already been through many companies uh, and starting, and what do, what do they do? And there's always some things to take away, and that's that's why I like to have so many different people on the show at different different levels to kind of have those kind of perspectives around these different things. So I really appreciate you sharing that, and just to bring things kind of full circle into uh, pain near me now. Yeah, that's all kind of. This has been obviously a, a long journey to this point for you and looking at the future, your career with pay near me, obviously this company you started, like what's, what's next? Where do you want to take this ultimately? Bigger and bigger and badder and badder and everything else will take care of itself. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and by the way, in a weird way, I, I'm inspired by Amazon in that regard. Right. I mean, yeah. uh, I don't think, you know, while Jeff clearly had the vision for the everything story, I don't think he had AWS in mind. Right. And yeah. so I think you just do stuff. And, and by the way, we had credit. We didn't think credit would turn into a cash network, which we didn't think would turn into this entire enterprise software suite or managing billing relationships. And I think as long as we keep recruiting really smart folks who like each other and enjoy working with one another and we maintain a constructive relationship with our board and we continue to grow, we will have our own AWS opportunities. Right. We will, we will find things that we can do that are, you know, the that keep growing the business and are interesting and fun. I think the point you mentioned there around the bringing smart people in is such a huge, a huge part of it because I even, mean, I don't know if you remember the, the story about Jeff Bezos where they talked about like an idea for how to like improve the company in the very, very early days of like sorting products. And he was like, Oh, we'll get knee pads. And someone else was like, why don't we just get tables? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the classic story yeah. is like, you surround yourself with smart people for those reasons because you're not going to have all the answers as a CEO. You know, you're never going to. You're obviously trying to lead the ship, as you mentioned, and and being able to side quickly from these smart people, but surrounding yourself with them is is so very important. And and one last just, wait, just, I, have, I have to say this: it's not just smart because there are lots of smart jerks and they'll ruin your company. It's I think the magic four, the Campbell magic four, would be they're going to be smart. They've got to be hard, really hardworking. They've got to have unquestionable integrity. And they, they would have what Bill would call character, but today would be called grit. You know, that, that's the magic four. And so the, the, the intersection of those four and the Venn diagram is actually reasonably small. And those are the magic ones that, you know, I think you want to find and keep, keep yourself around. Yeah, absolutely. And Danny, where can people go to learn more about Pay Near Me and connect with you as well? www.paynearme.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today, Danny. Thank you very much. Good talking to you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.